for me, that became writing. When I had this whole desire to, to create books, I didn't know how to write a book. I wasn't an author. It took me six years to write my first book. And even when I did, you know, the income from that book was absolutely minuscule. You, know, you don't write books to make money. So when I found a passion that I wanted to devote myself to, it would have been really good at that point if I'd already built up enough passive income that I didn't need to be working and I could have thrown myself totally into that passion. So here's the big question. Have you ever been so financially frustrated from years of poor financial decisions only to wonder, why didn't they teach me in school anything about how to manage money? I've spent the last 20 years learning the secrets to how money really works and how to use it to get financially free on a goal to retire early. I've realized how much of an impact we could have on the world by teaching financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and a successful mindset. Join me as I interview some of the world's most successful business owners, coaches, and parents to get them to share their secrets on how you can not only learn, but teach these lessons to your kids to become financially free and impact your children's financial trajectory so they can avoid the frustration and go on to do great things. I'm Cody Laughlin, and this is the Money Talkers Podcast. Welcome back to Money Talkers with your host, Cody Laughlin. I have Dave Mason here with me, and I'm very excited to talk to him because he is a novelist, an entrepreneur, and a personal growth junkie. But one of the books that he has written is The Cash Machine, A Tale of Passion, Persistence, and Financial Independence. And it teaches hundreds of financial lessons. And get this, it's all taught through a page-turning love story. Uh, and so I want to dive into that. I've got some more background on it. But um, with that said, I want to say welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you so much, Cody. It's great to be here. This is going to be kind of cool because I, I thought this was such a neat um, concept because I've never... I, I've never seen a love story financial lessons book. And so walk me through, how did you come up with this idea? So first of all, let me point out that I've never read a love story. I've never wanted to write a love story. I have no connection <laughs> to love stories whatsoever. But I love teaching through stories. And to me, this is my fourth book. And all of my books are, are books that teach something, but it's always through a novel because I feel that if you get into a novel, you get into a story, you're just in a different part of your brain. You're able to learn in a way that you might not learn if you're sitting in class or you're just hearing somebody go over numbers and details. So I really feel like story captures the imagination. I feel that it can, it's a way to kind of slide lessons in under the door in a certain way. I find that stories get through in a way that other types of learning just doesn't. And especially because there are certain people who will, they will go and pursue financial lessons wherever they can find them. They'll take the courses, they'll read the books, they'll do whatever they can. But there's a lot of people who need these financial lessons who just won't do that, who get intimidated by money talk, who get intimidated by taking classes. And I wanted a vehicle that I could reach them through. I wanted a way that people who wouldn't ordinarily learn these lessons could pick them up. And really, the number one person I was writing this book for was for me. Hmm. Because you know, some of the books that, I, that I've written, I've written because I had something specific that I knew that I'd seen the effect of in my life and I wanted to teach. This was an area where I felt I was really struggling. 
not because I hadn't earned money, I'd earned a ton of money, but because I made really stupid financial choices, I lost a lot of that money. I got myself deep in debt. And if I'm going to get education just for myself, just for my own financial choices, you know, I'll do certain things. I'll, I'll get a little bit. I'll get, you know, this much education, you know, a tiny amount. But if I have to write a book and I've got to educate all these other people, well, then I need to learn about topics that are specific to me and topics that are not relevant to me. I need to get a much wider education to write this book. So I decided to dive in and write a book because I knew that was the best way that I would get myself a really strong education for me. And then in writing it, it did not start out as a love story at all. Like I said, I have no interest in love stories, love story that's not my genre at all. It started out as a buddy story. But as I started writing it, it shifted. And I find that stories, they, they've, got their, they've got a life of their own. And in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense to me that it's a love story, even though that was not my intention at all. And the reason is because money is just such a crucial part of relationships. It's one of the top causes of divorce. It's one of the top causes of marital strife, even among those families that make it. It was one of the biggest struggles of my marriage. And you know, in the end, my wife came in and I started writing the book and she came in and joined me and we wound up co-writing it in the end. And to me, having it be a love story makes a lot of sense because it puts out all these lessons in a way that is relevant to this couple. Like it becomes a point of contention and it becomes a point of discussion amongst this couple. And so we really love this to be a book that actually couples sometimes read together and they go through together because it really lays out all the different ways that money can be an obstacle in romantic relationships and really in any relationship. And so as you play out the different story, you can see yourself in the different characters in their, in their various roles and say, oh, wow, that's like me. And my wife, well, she's like, she's like that. Okay, how do we bridge that gap that they're struggling with? I love that idea, man, because it's, it's it, one of the things that I don't think is discussed enough is the impact on relationships that money can have. You know, it's, it's, it's a, you mentioned like a point of contention. It can also be a celebration. It can be, but it's, it's, it's still very taboo subject to talk about, or people avoid it because it's almost like they say, well, I know we're going to fight about this. So I'm not going to talk to you about it. Right. Even though it's going to affect us, our kids and where we live, how we work, the time that we get to spend, you know, there's angst, there's jealousy, there's, I mean, it's just, it's an emotional thing that it sounds like you've started or you, you found a way to kind of tap into that. Exactly. It's a tremendously emotional thing. And as you point out, it's taboo. We're growing up, we're told, you know, when I was a kid, I'd know that somebody was, someone was wealthy, you know, my parents would have an acquaintance and I'd say, oh, I wonder how much they have. And I want to go like, talk to them about money. My parents are like, no, you can't talk to them about that. That's a very private thing. We don't talk about money. And so, you know, really what they were saying to me was, you're a kid. These are people you don't know. It's inappropriate for you to be doing so. But the message I think a lot of us get is it's wrong to talk about money. And it's not like I hit 18 and suddenly people said, okay, Dave, you are now old enough. Now let's start informing you about money it remained a taboo subject or, hey, Dave, you're now married. Now you need to learn about money and how to deal with it with your wife. No, it's like if there's something that is not comfortable talking about, it stays that way until you actively shift it. 
and my wife and I, I think had we really had intelligent conversations about money, had we learned about money together, I think we would have wound up on the same page very, very quickly. Yeah. But because we were both ignorant and uncomfortable with the subject, and we each kind of wanted to make decisions that we thought would please the other one, we made the dumbest decisions. And it created a tremendous amount of tension. We didn't know how to ha handle this issue. We didn't know how to navigate it together. Now, to me, there's not like one money path that everyone needs to follow. One of the other reasons why I like writing novels rather than nonfiction is that nonfiction usually advocates a certain position. And you have to do it just like this. And most money books are, here's a money strategy. First do A, then do B, then do C. But with a novel, I can have different characters representing different points of view and each arguing their points. And the book doesn't have to come to any conclusions. The readers can come to conclusions. The readers can say, wow, I really relate to Kyle on this point, or I really relate to Amber on that point. And couples can read it and discuss, because to me, there's not a money path that everyone needs to take. But if a husband and wife in particular are on different paths, that's when tension comes up. So if they have the ability to discuss the issues and come to a consensus about them, then there can be a hundred different paths they can take, but if they're together, money is not gonna be an issue. Most families I've seen torn apart by money have not been torn apart by a lack of money. They've been torn apart by two people having different perspectives on money and not coming to a consensus view. Yeah, you know, I was just kind of thinking about something when you were talking, and uh, there's one that comes up, I think, a lot in early marriages and things, but like you were talking about, if you guys were trying to do things for each other, or you were trying to do your best, I mean, it's not like you, you sent out to just be, you know, like make bad decisions, but it's like, if, if you've never played golf, and you went out and go to hit a golf ball on your own, by yourself, no one to teach you anything, and all of a sudden you go to hit it chances of you being good at it are probably slim to none, right? <laughs> you're, unless you're a natural born Tiger Woods who practiced all the time, by the way. But like, you know, and I just think about like with money, like it's always like, well, you go out on your own. There's no, you're not following principles or, or watching lessons or teaching yourself. Or if you have, you probably watched a couple of YouTube videos and that's about it. And then, you know, you, you're, you go out there and you take your first swing and you make mistakes but instead of being like, oh man, I got to get better at this. It's like shame. Like I'm not telling anybody about this one, right? Time to hide it. Like I don't, you know, everybody else knows what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing type of thing, you know? Exactly. And we don't talk about money. We don't talk to our friends about it. That's like a very private thing. We don't talk to our spouse of it more often than not. It's like we don't go out there and find the information on it. But how are we supposed so to learn book, it then? How, how do we, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't understand the mentality of like, I'm the only one who's going to learn about this. I'm the only one struggling with it. And, and I know this because I was that way, right? I think we're just, I, I, cause I grew up in a household that we talked about entrepreneurship. And so I just assumed I could own a business. Like I never even crossed my mind. I couldn't, but we never talked about money. Right. And so like once I had my massive downfall, I was so far in the hole, I just didn't care anymore. And so I started talking to people. Right. I was like, Oh man, you think you're in trouble? Like, look at me, you know, <laughs> talking to my friends over a beer, you know, and it's like, dude, like the IRS just hit me with a $98,000 bill and I don't have any money. So they're like, what, what are you going to do? You know, it's like, so we started talking about it and it was weird because then they started opening up to me because I don't know if it was because I was like so far off or it was just, I was just willing to talk about, it and there was a sense of relief. 
when I look back, I can find just about every single financial crisis I've ever been in, every single difficult point I've been in, every huge mistake I made in my business. I always had relationships with people I could have turned to and didn't. Like, it's not that, oh, I didn't have anyone to turn to. I can look back and I can say, I knew exactly who that person was in my life that I could have turned to, but yes, I felt like this was something I was supposed to figure out on my own. Like every single difficult milestone, there was somebody in my life who had the answer, who I had easy access to, who would have been delighted to help me had I picked up the phone and called. That's the funny part that I think that, uh, that, that the, what's almost, um, like a catch 22, right. Is that we're don't, we're not supposed to. So we have these like guilt and shame and bubble and like, ah, I'm not allowed to talk to anybody about this. And the funny thing is, is like, if you opened up to somebody who's way past where you are, instead of being like embarrassed, that you don't know what they know. They're super happy usually to help you. Super happy. And right. we've actually taken on this practice recently, my wife and I, as we've gone through this whole process and writing the cash machine, we reach out to every young couple who gets married in our community. Mm. And we invite them over for dinner. And we say, we're going to have you over for dinner and we're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about all of the financial lessons we didn't know when we got married and that we wish we knew. That's and awesome. we're going to lay out these clear fundamentals that it's important for you to know. And we give them a copy of the cash machine. We say, take this, read this together, discuss it, debate the points. Again, there's no one path you have to take, but the two of you need to develop the vocabulary and you need to open the channels of communication to comfortably talk about the subject and to go out and find help when you need it. Because otherwise it can absolutely tear you apart. That's fantastic. Um, I love that you're doing that. It's just, uh, you know, to set that as a, as a, uh, not only just a goal or like a, um, like we are going to go talk about this. And so when they're coming in, they know that. And like, it almost becomes like a third party referee to like, to just lay down some groundwork, you know, like I, I interviewed someone who was a, um, he basically helps kids get into college and save boatloads of money. Cause he starts with them in 10th grade or so. And he was like, yeah, he goes, mom and dad want one thing. Kids want another thing. He goes, a lot of times I'm just in the middle to make sure that they have a pathway to get to a great decision because otherwise there's strife because they don't see the world the same way. And that's kind of what you're talking about there is that to be in that middle part. And so when you do those uh, dinners and you reach out to these people or a lot of times with, or with your book, like, where do you start? What's, what's the, what's the openers for you um, of where if someone's listening to this and they're like, I kind of need to do these things. Like, you know, they're, they're, they say, okay, I'm ready to go. And where would you start? So first of all, the number one place I start, like I said, is that story gets rid of people. Mm. So we tell them about our stories and about the mess ups that we made and about the tension it caused. And I think just being open and vulnerable about the fact that we went through really hard times as a couple because of financial decisions and not being on the same page. So we start with that. The second thing we really start with is the fact that we didn't have a money goal. So we were doing great when we first got married around money up until a certain point. And the point is very easy to identify. We were doing great until we had more money than we knew how to spend. So my business was doing well. And as we made more money and we were able to really 
feel good and wow, we're, we're really making it, we're doing great. And then when it started like doubling and then like doubling again, and it's like, what do we do with this excess money? And if you have too much money just sitting in your pocket, it like, it absolutely burns a hole in your pocket. It like money is energy, money wants to be used. If you have too much money, you're gonna be like bouncing off the walls. You're gonna start making really dumb decisions. And because we didn't know what to do with our money, we got ourselves in a position where the money was like, hey, you don't wanna use me, I'll go somewhere else. Uh, you know, if money is, are you telling me that money is a burden in your life? No worries, I, I will remove that burden from your life. And here's a massive pile of debt. Now you know what to do. Now you can spend the next 10 years digging yourself out of this hole you got yourself in. See, no more money worries. But had we had- <laughs> Everything solved, right? <laughs> everything solved. But had we had a, had we had a goal, had we had an objective, we would have known what to do with our money. And so 100% what our goal is now and what we focus on now and what we tell people is the goal we suggest they have, at least initially until they hit it, is financial independence. Yes. So I was at this place where I didn't know what to do with excess money. I didn't know how to be investing it. And I didn't have this whole idea of creating passive income of saying, you know, my business was one that I knew was going to be ups and downs because it was very much based on the search engine algorithms and they could be up one day and you're getting a ton of traffic and the next day there could be a, a huge addition. In fact, I can tell you to the date, April 24th, 2012, when Google came out with their Penguin. Penguin update, and Panda, my, right? <laughs> my business, that was the date for Penguin. Yeah. My business crashed overnight and I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming for a long time because you know, I'd survived many ways that other people had not survived. And I knew that, you know, ultimately it was coming for me too. Yeah. Um, and, and I knew that my business wasn't going to be around forever, but I didn't know what to do with that money. If I'd learned that, okay, take the money out of this kind of high risk business that is making a lot right now and start diverting that, putting it into passive income sources. So while you're riding the wave, take that money out of there, put it into like rental real estate or something very reliable that can build another income source. And so that when suddenly, you know, your wave crashes and your business, which, you know, eventually is going to come down when it comes crashing down, you've built up a secondary income source. And if you never have another business in your life, you're okay. Because you put away the money, you put it in a really intelligent place while you, while you had the opportunity. So taking my active income and making it passive income that would have been the route I'd go. And that's really what I'd recommend people do. I say, once you have, you're financially independent, once your passive income exceeds your cost of living, then you can continue working if you want to, if that's where your passion lies, but never with the pressure that you have to. Mm -hmm. So if circumstances change, your business changes, your industry changes, COVID hits, and suddenly you find that your, your whole income crashes, anything happens, you're not gonna panic, or you find, a new passion, you find something that you're so devoted to that you wanna work really hard on. For me, that became writing. When I had this whole desire to, to create books, I didn't know how to write a book. I wasn't an author. It took me six years to write my first book. And even when I did, you know, the income from that book was absolutely minuscule. You, know, you don't write books to make money. So when I found a passion that I wanted to devote myself to, it would have been really good at that point if I'd already built up enough passive income that I didn't need to be working. And I could have thrown myself totally into that passion. Yeah. You know, I love that because it, because, um, financial independence provides freedom, you know, um, 
I think it's uh, one of the Kiyosaki ones. Um, you know, he's got some good ones out there, but one of them was uh, um, the you need to be rich with time, not money, right? Uh, the wealthy or the wealthy are rich with time, not money. And by I meant by that is you don't have to trade your time to work for money. You get your money to work for you. And uh, I love that you said setting a goal. Um, I would guess that's pretty foreign to most couples. I don't think it would be very foreign to most entrepreneurs because I think they'd say, oh, I want to hit a million bucks or I want to do this. Are they serious? Because they do they back into the goal, like how to get there, you know? And so like when you talk about financial independence, you know, if you're listening to this, you're not sure what that means. It means that you have more passive income than you have bills, right? For the shortest term I can come up with. When I found about fire, I was when I was in my deepest hole and all I could think about was like, wow, that sounds awesome. Like, I want to get to that. Like, how long do I have to get to that? And I was like, I got 11 years. Okay, well, what do I need to do in these 11 years? And I backed into it and I said, can I do this? And when I did that, and I took this gigantic, uh, my daughter was laughing because I taught her what a BHAG was uh, this past, like this past week. I was like, you know what a BHAG is? And she, she finds it to be the funniest word she's ever heard. She's nine. So she Big was hairy, like, audacious goal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she was like, what? And I'm like, yep. I was like, we're going to set some BHAGs for you. And she was like, oh, she just finds it hilarious. But like, um, so I experiment on her a lot. <laughs> she, she loves it. So we do a lot of money talking to my house. But um, I set this thing and I wanted that independence. It was because I wanted to choose what I wanted to do when I got up in the morning. You know, I tell people I retired at 39. I still own three companies, but I, I work as I need to. And I work on the things that are most important in the company. I don't have to go to work to make sure the company lives anymore, you know, and that's, that's been very valuable to me. And so as you started building uh, into your passive income, you started building these stories with your wife, like, how, how did you go about your goal setting? Because like you said, there's different perspectives. So generally there's going to be maybe different endings is it like a compromise a conversation it was an education more than anything like i said my wife and i we would have been exactly on the same page we're not two people who see money incredibly differently yeah we're two people who didn't have education and so we're clueless and we're each making dumb decisions oftentimes trying to do what the other we thought the other person might want but once we got an education together, once we read books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and really took the, the time and effort to learn about money, our perspective on it was totally the same. We were completely in line. There was no need to, to make compromises. You know, there, there were discussions and we came to an understanding. We'd sometimes debate different points, debate you know, where we wanted to put our money or have various discussions like that. But it was not two educated people with drastically different perspectives hashing something out. It was two uneducated people who went on a journey of learning together and really emerged with a very unified understanding. So that was the goal. The goal was to get a goal or to learn together. Goal is to get a goal. Yeah, right? So it's interesting, <laughs> one, of our, one of our other books, our previous book that we wrote together prior to The Cash Machine is The Size of Your Dreams. And that's actually also a novel. We say it's, like Think and Grow Rich meets Dead Poet Society. It's a novel set in a high school classroom, but it teaches people how to be creating goals for themselves and how to actually take steps to get to those goals. So we, we do have a lot of familiarity with, with creating goals, with creating visions, 
and then once we set our sights on financial independence, at that point, it was, it was full steam ahead. Yeah. At that point, we really knew what to be doing, what steps to be taking. I mean, a ton of education went into this. If we hadn't been writing the cash machine, we would have done 10% of the education that we actually did. Mm. But in order to write the cash machine, we just covered so many different areas of money that we're looking at real estate, business acquisition, taxes. We're looking at so many different things from credit cards, stock market. There's literally hundreds of different topics that we cover. And so we came out of it with a very clear understanding. Well, this is the type of thing we want to be putting our money into. This is the type of thing we don't want to be putting our money into. And things are a little bit different for us as well because we live, we're expatriates. We grew up in the United States and we live in Israel. So some of the strongest real estate strategies that we discussed in the cash machine are very, very strong in the United States, but don't translate terribly well to Israel. Mm. So we've had to do a number of- Is it a financing difference? Or is it a law? Is it a legal difference? A bit of both. Yeah. So for instance, you know, if we were living in America, we likely would have done what's known as the house hack, which is to me is one of the most powerful techniques you can use where you can buy a, buy a building, buy a property of up to four different apartments. And it's all considered to be your primary residence and fits into a primary residence mortgage, which is lower than a commercial commercial mortgage. And you're able to get in with a very small amount of money down oftentimes. And that would have allowed us to really leverage a lot of money and very quickly build up rental properties because you can actually move once a year and all of your prior properties stay as primary residences. So you can Same financing literally terms. have, yep. <laughs> yeah, you can have, you can have a hundred homes literally like on primary, uh, <laughs> primary residence mortgages. Shockingly. Yeah. I, and, I, I love that idea. Um, the, let me ask you something real quick, uh, Dave, I want to shift. I want to, cause you mentioned that you wrote a book about writing goals to me. And you also mentioned that would be where you would start with your conversations. So if you're, if you've got a parent listening right now and they're shaking their head going, I need my kid to write some goals. Like I know this is important. I don't do this exercise. Like what, what would be some advice from you on how they could get their kids to participate in a goal writing exercise? That's a great question. So one of my favorite exercises is something called, technically called the, the logical levels. It comes from the world of NLP. We actually, we teach it as des- something we call destiny in motion. And it's an exercise that has you start off at your deathbed. Start off, you know, go well into the future and you're, you're dying. I want you to picture your life has you've got basically everything you've wanted to accomplish in your life has come true. You're surrounded by exactly you know, the loved ones you want. You're, you look back, you're seeing, wow, my life from whatever it is, from this date to the, the date that you're, you're going to die has been as, as well as you would have like, liked it to go. And then I have people like visualize that and then tell me, what has your life been about? And mm-hmm. they start talking about the things they wanted to create in their life. And then I'll pull them back and I'll say, okay, well, what about like, say when you're in your 50s and you're kind of in the thick of things, what, are you, what is your life looking at then? So now in your, your deathbed and you've been retired for a long time to a ripe old age, what about when you were like right in the thick of 
of your life. And then let's go back 30, even more so, you know, like, okay, and where would you be at like, say 35? Where would you be um, before that? Have people go, not from where I am, what is a logical next step? That's a mistake people make all the time. They look at where they are in life. Like for me, you know, after college, I didn't know what to do with myself next. I had a strong aptitude for law and did really well in the LSATs. And so I went to law school and I got myself into a ton of educational debt. But how do you, I really stopped and thought, thought about it. Do I picture myself as a lawyer 20 years later? I would have said, no, I don't see myself sitting in some office job and, and you know, working in law. I just didn't know what to do. And I'm like, okay, what could be a positive next step to take? It wasn't taken from the perspective of where do I want to wind up? What do I want my life to be about? And those types of questions. So we start with somebody like at deathbed and then we pull them back to like closer and closer timeframes until we can get them to say, all right, so what is going to get you to that vision that you, jo- you just gave us? Your articulated vision, what's going to get you there? Like you talked about, for instance, um, you know, a business person, entrepreneur having a goal of making a million dollars. To me, that, that goal doesn't resonate so much because it feels like a fairly arbitrary number. Mm-hmm. I'm much more into a goal that talks about, well, how do you want to live? Where do you want to live your life? Are you going to want to be in the city or are you going to want to be in the country? Are you going to want to have land and a farm? Are you going to want to be, are you going to want to have children? And if you do have children, well, how are you going to want to be dealing with them? Are you going to want to be working full time and having somebody else look after them? Or are you going to want to say, when I've got my kids, I want to be, I want to be there when they come home from school, or maybe I even want to homeschool. You know, that's a very different trajectory for what you, you're going to need to earn for how much money you're going to need to bring in. Then if you're somebody who says, no, I never want to have kids. I really excited about corporate law. And I want to be, I, I'm the type of person who loves, gets fired up working 60 hour weeks. Well, that person needs a very different path of what they want to be, how much they need to be saving, how much income they need to be generating. You need a lot less passive income if you want to be working hard your whole life than you do if you want to be a homeschool parent and would rather not have any financial burdens coming in at all. I want to I want to interject something on this because I think there's a very big crossover point that I see with entrepreneurs more than anybody. But the idea of taking the logical levels or the destiny in motion and saying, okay, at my deathbed, what do I want to come back to, right? And you're talking about, well, I didn't want to be a lawyer for 20 years. I, I think it's a massive lesson where if you're going to open a business and you're going to run a business, how long are you going to run this thing for, right? Do you want to be doing this in 20 years? A lot of people open businesses and don't want to be doing that business in 20 years. So they don't look at it as an exit piece to say, okay, if let's say I want to do this for five years, I'm willing to commit to that. Okay, what do I, how can I sell this business in five years? How can I build this thing to where somebody else can own it and I can sell this and create some wealth for myself? And I don't think that exercise happens very often at all, right? No, it doesn't. And it's you just build like you said, I, I went into finance because I went into the finance office and they were like, well, marine biologists make this and finance people make that. And I was like, well, I guess I should do that then. Right. And I changed my degree immediately. Like I had no, I, I no desire in my life to sit in a bank for 30 years. Right. So I, I could totally resonate with your t- attorney story. <laughs> Absolutely. And you build a business very differently if you want to sell it in five years than if you want to keep it. Like yes. for me, I still, ha- I still have my business as much as I said, it got 
clobbered by Penguin and I lost money for years and I had to fire the majority of my staff and I had to rebuild my business, but I still have it. And it's a very part-time business. And for a while, people kept telling me, you know, you need to have an exit strategy with a business. And so I looked at selling it. I looked at what I'd have to do. And I said, you know what? I'd get so little money from the business for selling it. And it doesn't take me a lot of stress. I love working with my staff. I'm able to, I know what to do and I've been doing it for so long. It's not a big time suck for me. And I don't need to be selling it. I'm perfectly happy having it for a really long time and just having the income. In fact, I like to go the other way. I'm very into business acquisition. If you can buy, mm -hmm. a, if you can buy a business that you can work in as little as I have to work in my, my main business that provides my main income, then that's a fabulous return on investment. Small businesses like mine tend to sell for two and a half to three times their, their annual profits, which means that you could get 33 to 40% annual return, even without increasing a business's profits, just by buying, buying businesses. So, you know, so to I, me, like- I, So I have, I have a book that I'm working on, right? And it's called, oh, Built, for, it's called Built for Exit, right? But it's, uh, if you build a business- where it could be built for an exit, whether you want to sell it or not, you're, you're describing exactly what I'm talking about, right? Because I have a company like that. And I have been very active in a company and I have this company and it's built for, an, it's built for someone to acquire it, but I don't care. It's built for, now it doesn't take, it's not a time suck. I have money coming in. I have very few employees. It's just, it's built differently. And, uh, and it's describing exactly what you're talking about. You know, with your, exactly, with your company. Because if, mm -hmm. if you build it for an exit, it has to have reliable systems in it. Yes. That don't that don't depend upon one individual doing anything. As long as as soon as you have a business that is built upon the wisdom of one individual and you need that highly experienced person to run it, you're never gonna be able to do anything with it. Which is usually the and entrepreneur. <laughs> right exactly <laughs> which which didn't it, it, every entrepreneur i meet who has some levels of success was like i just want my time back like originally it was like i want to make a bunch of money and then like once they get into it for a while and they get stuck and then they become the linchpin and they don't offload to staff and build systems now they become the linchpin and then they're just like i just want my time back like now i'm 60 70 hours a week and my dream is gone right yeah i, I used to describe myself as an entrepreneur and i don't like using that term anymore because I'm not out there hustling and doing things. I'd rather business say owner. I'm a small, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a business owner. Yeah. I'm a small businessman and the business does its thing. We actually had today of all days, one of the largest crises that I've had in you know, the past five years, we'd found a, a very freak glitch that, that happened. And all these freak orders came through that were, we're selling products for like a quarter what it cost us to buy them rather than, you know, twice what it cost us to buy them, which is the ideal. And yeah, and I had to go and scramble and find solutions, but like, you know what? Okay, that comes once every few years that there's a, there's a glitch and every, every now and then I've got to jump into a problem I didn't see coming and find a solution to it. But for the most part, we come up with systems and now we're building systems. Wow, how do we catch it early again? If this freak system should happen again, okay, now it's, it's part of our system. We're building it into it so that if this crisis comes up again, hopefully it'll be detected before a single cell goes through. You know, the and difference, we, and we won't have that. The difference too, that I find now is that <clears throat> my emotional reaction to issues is a thousand, like I'm the adult in the room when problems come up now, 
You know what I mean? Like if you'd woke up and like, if you're, if you're in the mix and you're in there and you're like, ah, and you're just, you're not taking the time to step out and build systems to do that stuff. If that had happened to you in that situation, when you were the entrepreneur and not the business owner, you go, you, you start freaking out and you start shut it down, click, you know, and you just you know, like the whole thing just goes haywire. And now it's like, all right, well, how many did we lose? Okay, stop that. What do we, where did it go wrong? How do we fix that? What's the system now? How can we prevent this in the future? Oh, by the way, now that we got a solution to that, can we apply that to other pieces over here? And then now it's gotten better, you know, and, and, and it's like, usually you come out on the other side now, way stronger. When, but I used to have problems, there were the fires and I was always the fireman, you know, and now I'm more like the fire inspector that comes in and, and designs it from the beginning to, you know, or re redesigns if it needs to be. <laughs> Yeah, and I had this kind of heartbreaking moment where the guy, the guy who messed up, the, the person who, who had written the code that caused the problem, and he realized it's like, wow, this is my mistake, and, and he's offering to pay for this. And he's basically saying, like, I'm just going to deduct this from my, my invoices. And first of all, I mean, he thought that he he looked at the numbers and he saw that you know we had fifteen thousand dollars in losses that he was going to be making up from the from this error, and first of all I said no no no, we caught this soon we're going to be able to stop those orders we're going to be able to reverse that it's going to be a, we're going to be able to first take this major losing issue and bring it down to a small inconvenience, and two, one of the reasons why you know being the business owner. I get a lot more than any of my staff do because yeah. I'm willing to take a certain amount of risk. I said, look, this is, this is on me. Yes, you made a mistake. It's okay. We're going to learn from it. We're going to move on. But this is in my calculations. This is, I've got a certain amount of money that goes in for, you know, I need a certain amount of cushion in what I sell to cover mistakes. And this is covered by that. This is, you made an honest, honest error. You've been a great employee. You're working really really hard. You do fabulous, reliable work. We caught this mistake. You fixed it. We're not deducting any money. This is coming out of whatever losses there are coming out of my side. But that's part of being a business owner. It's part of saying, all right, I'm taking this risk on myself. Things will go wrong. We'll have to adjust. And it's okay. We're going to go on. We've. This is all built into the system. You know, what an awesome opportunity to build morale because the other parts of the team will see that, but also the loyalty of someone that when you have a good employee like that, not to just blow up, right? And that's what I was talking about being the adult in the room. You know, yeah. uh, when I have those issues now and I see someone and I see the angst on their face when they mess up and I'm like, I always look for intention. You know, did you, you know, were you kind of like winging it on purpose or were you like, you just made an honest mistake? You know, and if their their intention is is in line, then I don't I, I don't want because what's going to happen is if I replace them in my mind, I'm going to have to pay for the next mistake of somebody, right? <laughs> because they don't know this lesson yet, right? This guy now knows the lesson, and it'll probably never happen again, and that's a training cost, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember reading about this one story. I don't remember the exact names. There's somebody who got into IBM. And we got some senior was at some senior position and made some horrible mistake that cost them six million dollars back when six million dollars was a lot more money than it is today. And he goes into the CEO with his resignation and say, I'm so sorry about this. You know, I've got to go. And the guy says, Are you nuts? I just spent six million dollars educating you. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and that's and the thing is, man, that that let's say it was two thousand or three thousand dollars or whatever your fifteen thousand dollar mistake was. When the other employees see it, when that guy comes in, you're gonna make you'll make that backhand over fist because of your approach to it. But as an entrepreneur and a small business owner, many of those people haven't gotten to that level of being a business owner yet. But you can objectively look at it because you're not in the middle of the trees either and you've built your company for an exit right and so even though you don't want to you still can now four five six hours whatever it is hop in use your area of expertise and i would imagine you probably have better ideas now because you're not in there 40 50 60 hours a week doing that stuff because you've got time to let your brain process and think and think about bigger problems for the company instead of you know where's this penny where's that dollar type of stuff yeah, and I look at my business in some ways as if I had exited. Yeah, as, like a as if like, they, like right now, like I am a. Yes, I still own one hundred percent of the business, but it doesn't depend upon me. Doesn't take much of my time, and it produces a nice income. So, one of my friends in venture capital said to me at a certain point, he says, "Dave, that is an exit strategy. Don't think." You have to put together an exit strategy because everyone says you have it. If you've got a lot of money coming in without a lot of effort going out, that's an exit strategy. You're living off the profits of that business. Yeah, I love that. Um, Dave, I want to say thank you so much um, for coming on Money Talkers with me. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. That That is that is the extra strategy. The, the, that's why I, I wish, I, I hope more entrepreneurs look at this and say, okay, what's the goal? Is a goal to build it, to leave it to somebody? Is a goal to own it and somebody else run it and go find something else to do? Is the goal to exit it and create a lot of wealth quickly? What's the time frame? Those kind of fun things. But um, I, I love your approach to it uh, with with your book and everything else. And so um, I appreciate your time spending on the goal setting piece. I was making some notes for myself because I really uh, I really enjoyed that. And where do people find out more about you and who should be finding you? Okay, fantastic. So first of all, I talked about two books. I talked about The Cash Machine with all the financial lessons and The Size of Your Dreams. And we just give our books away for free. So we are perfectly happy for anyone to take it, to download it. We are not looking to be you know, making a dollar here, a dollar, dollar there on book sales. So The Cash Machine, you can get at buildmycashmachine.com and The Size of Your Dreams at thesizeofyourdreams.com. And they're free downloads. Please read them, enjoy them. Any lessons you're able to take from them is, you know, that's why we write the books. We don't write them to support ourselves. That's what we got the business we talked about for. We built, write them to help people learn these lessons and help to enrich lives through them. So buildmycashmachine.com and thesizeyourdreams.com is where you can find those two books. That's awesome. And what a great offer, man. We'll put some links into the uh, into the show notes for that as well uh, so you can get there. But I think that's a super cool option uh, offer. And, in, and and you putting that those uh, good things out into the world. And I think that's uh, we need more of that. So thank you so much for coming on Money Talkers with me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Money Talkers with me, your host, Cody Laughlin. If you found this episode helpful in your pursuit of financial dominance, it really helps if you make sure to leave a five-star rating and share it with your friends or family members who could use good financial information and entrepreneurial success tips. I invite you to join the Money Talkers community Facebook group. Open Facebook and search for Money Talkers to join today. Follow us on Instagram at the Money Talkers. 
for inspirational mindset posts, encouragement, and investing tips. And remember, the one thing you can do to change your kid's financial future is to start talking about money with them because you are a money talker.